So hi, everyone, and welcome to the Inclusion Podcast. I am here again with Pat Radel talking a lot about myths around special education, and you are not going to want to miss this episode. Um, We're starting with a myth that I see all over New York. I don't know if it's everywhere, but I see it often in New York where someone says a one-on-one paraprofessional is the most restrictive environment. So join us, and we're going to talk a little bit about five more myths of special education. Okay, we're back with Pat Radel and Julie Costin for the Inclusion Podcast. The first myth that we're talking about today is that a paraprofessional is considered the most restrictive environment. Can you please shed some light on this? Sure. Yeah, it's a simple answer. A paraprofessional is a support, not an environment. Um, An environment refers to a classroom setting, a student-to-teacher ratio, a location. Um, Last time I checked, most paraprofessionals I know are not classrooms. They're people. They're humans, (laughs) exactly. they provide support. Um, And I often say, too, hey, it might be your experience that paraprofessionals are restrictive to the student. And my suggestion is if that's your experience, which may well be the case, they're doing it wrong. They, they, need, they need support and, and um, professional development in how to support a student with a disability on a one-on-one basis without being uh, restrictive. I often think in this context, uh, Julie, of something you, you brought up uh, about people that use wheelchairs objecting to the expression that they're confined to the wheelchair mm-hmm. um, because the wheelchair is actually liberating for them and allows them access to um, environments and activities that they would not otherwise be able to access. And I think of a one-on-one paraprofessional in the same way for many students with disabilities. Properly trained and properly supervised, a paraprofessional can be um, liberating for the Mm -hmm. student and allow them to have access to experiences and interactions that they would not otherwise be able to in a safe way and an effective way for them. Um, It's just a matter of getting it right. Uh, but a paraprofessional is is not an environment. It is a it is a portable service and support that can be provided to a student anywhere. Um, so it should not be considered part of the least restrictive environment analysis. Great. I'm just hoping everyone in New York is listening who thought this idea that a paraprofessional is environment. Paraprofessional is a support. You hear you heard it here first. Okay. So this myth number two for today is that the school evaluation is final. Many times I think in CSEs, parents are sitting at the table and they're receiving the information about the evaluations that have taken place and the feeling is that's the final word. Can you talk about that? Sure. Parents actually have the right to independent educational evaluations, Mm -hmm. um, which they can pay for at their expense or under certain circumstances, um, they can have the school district pay for independent educational evaluations. That would be evaluations done by someone not employed by the school district. One of the things that the law recognized was that there was an inherent disadvantage or barrier to parents having meaningful participation in the development of the IEP, namely that the school has a monopoly on firsthand educational experience and expertise. So the law includes a provision that allows parents to provide and ask for independent educational evaluations at school district expense. Um, So if the school district is reducing therapies or making placement decisions or service decisions based on an 
in part or in whole on an evaluation that they've done, the parent has the right to say, well, I don't agree and I would like an independent party to perform that evaluation. And as I mentioned, under certain circumstances, um, the school can be required to pay for that. It's not something the parents have to pay for. And then once that independent evaluation is obtained, the school is legally required to at least consider it when we revisit the question of, of what the appropriate programs are or placement. Great. So if I'm a parent and I really am feeling uncomfortable with either the information being provided to me or decisions being made because of the information being provided to me, um, that might be a moment where I would go to my CSC chair or my special education administrator and say, we're really interested in an educational evaluation that's independent from the school. That's right. And at that point, they should provide you with two things. One is a list of independent providers who have already agreed to perform independent education evaluations for the school. And the other would be the lists, uh, the standards and criteria the school district uses. So for mm. example, if they allow for psychoeducational evaluations, they require a person with the following credentials and they reimburse at the following rate. They should provide you with a list of pre-approved providers mm -hmm. and that criteria. And then it would be your choice to either choose from the list of people they provided or you can pick your own person to perform it, provided they meet those criteria that's been that's been established by the school and provided they'll accept whatever the reimbursement rate is that the school establishes. So that's a really important point because I've worked with families who have said, they're only allowing me to select from this list. And so I really struggled with the concept of, well then how is that an independent educational evaluation if the district is providing the list? And so what Pat just added is really important they also have to provide the criteria they're using. Right. And then as long as, if you have another provider that you'd like to use, as long as they meet that criteria and are willing to accept that re the reimbursement rate, the school pays their, the approved providers, then the school is required to pay for the evaluation that, um, but the evaluation that you've selected. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Okay. So the next myth for today is myth number three, and it's this concept of a waiting list where a student can be denied a service. Let's imagine um, a district says, boy, we'd really love to give your child speech and language services. It's just there's a waiting list to get those services. Or um, more recently, I've talked to a family who said they told me that the, inclus the inclusive placement is full and that they're on a waiting list for inclusion. Can you talk about the concept of a waiting list when it comes to services? Sure. So two things. One, the student's IEP should be based on their needs, the, right. the goals you've developed and the needs that they have, not on any questions of administrative convenience. Um, they're not entitled to any more or less than they need because it is administratively convenient or inconvenient for the school district to provide those supports or services. In addition, once the IEP has been developed and the student has been, it's been determined that the student needs these supports and services, the IEP is a legally binding document mm -hmm. and needs to be followed by the school district irrespective of whether they can make it happen practically. They need to find a way to make it happen um, and that might require some you know, hard work on their part, extra effort in terms of uh, reimbursements or, or, or hiring, hiring someone. people. Right. But yeah, if they need it, they, it needs to be provided uh, per the terms of the IEP. And the IEP, again, is based on the student's needs, not on what's feasible for the school district. And I usually try to be polite about that and say, right. look, I, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I appreciate you have a difficult job, um, that it's hard to find good people, especially in, in rural areas. Yeah. I find that to be the case. Um, but you know, we have to start with the presumption that 
it's not okay to just say, well, we'll provide these services once we have a, a, a provider. Um, there has to be a pretty uh, thoroughgoing commitment to, hey, this is a legally binding document and we need to make sure we are complying with it. Uh, if not for nothing, not as if it wasn't enough, the fact that it's a legally binding document, uh, we have determined this student needs this, needs these services, mm -hmm. needs these supports to make meaningful educational progress. And, and what are the consequences of having them miss out on that? So um, as a practical tip for, for families, I say, you know, if, if you are, are waiting and have tried, um, you should be looking at engaging the services of an advocate, an attorney, reaching out if there's a state agency that supervises um, special education and looking to get intervention from a third party to hopefully put your uh, student's name to the very top of the list and, and make compliance with the IEP a, a very urgent priority for your school district. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So here's a different kind of myth, and it's really sometimes a myth that families have and really there's a reality to it that I think is pretty important. So it's a, a belief that sometimes families have that is, you know, my student really should get everything they need and everything to maximize their potential. And um, there's a limitation to that that I want you to talk about that's important. Sure, I mean, the special education law, IDEA, does not require a program that maximizes potential or provides everything that a parent might want for that student. And that's a hard thing to hear. Um, it's also, I find often when I have this conversation with parents, they'll point to the school district's webpage, which will have a mission statement yeah. that talks about maximizing the potential of every student. And while certainly that's an aspiration, and it's right for us to kind of hold that out to the school as, hey, you know, whatever is legally required, Aren't you in this to try to make the most of every student you have? And for my student, that might require something different or more mm -hmm. than it might a typical student. Um, but legally, the school is required to give a free, appropriate public education. And so most people understand what free means mm -hmm. and public means, but what's appropriate and what's an education, that often is a subject of, of disagreement between families and schools. But, uh, and we got some help about a year, and a half, almost two years ago now, with the Supreme Court in the Andrew case, said that a free appropriate public education is education that is reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of his or her circumstances and meet goals that are appropriately ambitious. So when we're trying to make arguments for more programs or different services, we always wanna frame it in terms of this is what the student needs to make progress toward his or her goals um, and that's needed for the student to make meaningful educational progress. Mm -hmm. Is this the analogy that I often hear at IEP meetings that we don't have to give them the Cadillac when we can give them the Fiat or something? You know, yes. Wait, no, Fiat's not a good example. Fiat's are fancy. No, a Cadillac <laughs> or Chevrolet. Chevrolet, yeah, okay, Chevrolet. there's a better example. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, on, that comes right out of, there was a judge that wrote that right up and that actually comes right out of a judicial decision that said that the school is required to give Chevrolet and not a Cadillac to students. My pushback on that is, well, you have to give them a Cadillac if all your other students are getting a Cadillac, right? And so, my, okay. right, so my my child is entitled to a first class education just like the rest of the students that you're providing. Mm -hmm. um, but understanding again, yes, that is that is the framework. There there is kind of a, an outer boundary where um, if we wanted, you know, this amazing program, if they can provide something that is the functional equivalent to that or will allow for some progress, that is considered sufficient. But even if they're not accepting our program as 
to more robust than is necessary or more, you know, kind of above and beyond, um, they're still, the school district is still required to show that what they are providing is appropriately ambitious and will allow the student to make meaningful progress in light of his or her circumstances. Okay, thank you. The last myth that we're highlighting is the concept that is based on a feeling that I know many families have, which is I am in this alone. I am really working with a school district that is not understanding inclusive education, and I feel very alone in this work. Can you talk about that? Sure. Having a child with special needs um, is wonderful. There are many things about it that I think we can be grateful for, uh, but there's no question about it, it is really hard. Mm -hmm. it's, it's challenging work. Um, and there's nothing anybody can do that's gonna take that challenge away. But one thing that is the case is none of us should feel like we need to do this alone. We need to support each other. There are lots of support groups, uh, government agencies, uh, lay advocates, attorneys, um, and resources. So I just really encourage people to uh, not think they have to fight this alone. I'll tell families all the time, I, I would never take your job as the number one advocate for your child. That's your job first, last, and always, but I can support you and I can connect you with resources um, that will be of support to you so that you can be informed and empowered and also encouraged uh, because it can be very discouraging and, and you need that friendly voice to, to uh, give you advice about how to think through things through and how to uh, work through and also encouragement for when you're at those low moments to say, you know, we can do this and here are some options and here are some, some supports that I can provide to you. Yeah, thank you. One thing that's really nice, Pat, about doing this work is doing this work in a context where we've got attorneys like you really willing to support the work of inclusion. For me personally, I find it really hard because I obviously espouse these ideas about inclusive education and I write about them and I talk about them and I teach about them. And then every once in a while, there's a parent who says, I need support in this work. And so I just wanna thank you for your work because it's been critical to the success of many, many families in our area, uh, really achieving inclusion. So thank you for all of that work. Thanks, it's an honor. Great, thank you so much. And join us for our very next podcast,